Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Well, good morning, uh, church. Great to have you here this morning. Let me just begin with a couple of statements that are just key truths about Christianity, foundational truths uh, like a, a guiding compass or a north star uh, to Christianity. Those two truths are this. Number one, Christianity believes that the Bible is the written Word of God. That this book right here, Old and New Testament, 66 letters, are the written Word of God. And Christianity believes, Orthodox Christianity believes, that Jesus Christ is the living Word of God. The Word of God alive in the flesh. So we have the written Word of God in this book. And in Jesus we have that Word incarnate, that Word in the flesh, that Word in a person. Here's what John wrote in the beginning of his Gospel. John, one of the twelve probably the closest of the twelve to Jesus. He opens up his story about the life of Jesus like this. In the beginning was the Word, capital W. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1. John 1.14, he goes on, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, the eternal Word, that Word, John said, that existed with God as a part of the triune Godhead, He that was with God, that Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. So we have the written word and we have Jesus, the living word. So it would make sense, would it not, that if those two statements upon which Christianity hangs their beliefs upon, If those two statements are true, that the Bible is the written Word of God and Jesus is the living Word of God, that you should be able to put the Bible next to Jesus and you should see two representations of the same thing. I mean, that that should make sense, right? If there is a written Word and Jesus is the incarnation of that truth, that what you should have in the Bible is a picture of Jesus and what you should have when you look at Jesus is the... Truth of the Bible. And you see, that is in fact what we have. One of the great proofs that Jesus is who He claimed to be. 
We've been talking about that for the past three weeks, and we will be doing that until the end of December, both on our Sunday services and our Christmas Eve service, and in weekly emails that myself or one of our other two pastors have been sending out. We've been talking about how the Old Testament Scripture and the prophecies of a coming Savior, a Messiah, those promises that God gave that this Messiah was to come, how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment and embodiment of those promises that God had made. You see, because Jesus is the living word that is a perfect correlation or literal example of the written word. So we've been talking about that, the theme title has been God is a God who is faithful to his promises. And he is. And this is a book full of promises. And the greatest promises are about his son, the Savior that was to come. And the Old Testament is full of those. And what we see in the person of Jesus is the living proof, the undeniable Proof that God is a God who keeps His promises. That's what we're talking about. So we're going to continue that this morning here on this Christmas Sunday, Sunday before Christmas. You know, Christmas is, it's an incredible historical account an incredible historical account. It's a true story, not like the story that we are seeing in the media and in the shopping malls in our festive season, right? There is a true story behind Christmas, an incredible historical story, and that story is about the most influential, radical, transformational controversial person who ever drew breath on this planet and his name is Jesus. And in Jesus, again, what we see and have is the proof that God is the God who is faithful to his promises. John said in the verse that we read, that the Word became flesh. He that was with God, the Word, the Logos in the Greek, he that was God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. How did that happen? I want to talk about that reality for the large portion of my message. Just that one fact that really is the keystone, the center stone, the cornerstone that Christianity rests upon. So let me just talk about that with you for a minute. How is it that this Word became flesh? Well, a couple of our pastors as we've been going through this series, uh, Pastor Dale and Pastor Chris, both mentioned a prophecy, the very first prophecy of the Messiah that was given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I just want to refer to that again. We won't look there. 
But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, at the very fall of man, there was a promise given that there was going to be a seed of woman that would come. And that seed of woman was going to defeat Satan. He was going to take care of what was lost at the fall because of sin. And hundreds of years later, here's what Isaiah, in the Old Testament, still looking forward prophetically to the coming of this seed, the coming of this Savior, this Messiah, as the Old Testament calls Him. Here's what Isaiah wrote in chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. So Isaiah said that the Messiah, this long-promised one, was going to be born of a virgin. Chapter 7. Chapter 9, Isaiah goes on and he writes this. Verse 6 of the ninth chapter. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So let me just draw a point out that's made in those two prophecies from Isaiah about this future from his day, future coming Messiah that God had been promising down through the Old Testament. Isaiah said that the Messiah that was going to come was going to be born of a virgin and he would be a man who was God. Please do not miss that. That is the keystone, the centerpiece, the cornerstone upon which Christianity rests. Isaiah said that the child would be born of a virgin, chapter 7, verse 14, and that that child, chapter 9, verse 6, would be the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Then the New Testament opens. 700 and some years after Isaiah wrote that. 4,000 years or so after Genesis 3.15 was penned. The first promise or prophecy. And the New Testament opens in Matthew and an angel comes to a man by the name of Joseph who's engaged to a woman by the name of Mary. And the angel tells Joseph that Mary's going to have a child even though she's a virgin. And that the child is a miraculous child. The child is from above. The child has been conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. And then Matthew writes these words in Matthew 1, 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, by Isaiah, 
Back in chapter 7, verse 14, some 700 years ago, verse 23 of Matthew 1, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew gives the commentary, which means God with us. So the story of Christmas is a story of God with us. Would you say that with me? Ready, go. God with us. That's the Christmas story. God with us. God, come as seed of a woman, came as a man who is God. A God-man. Now that might be rudimentary biblical understanding to some of you, but there is an attack against that. Even in the church today, that is coming up for question or debate like the fanciful stories about this virgin birth. We don't really need those for Christianity, so it is said. Well, I just, I want you to know with every bit of conviction that I have, that that is an absolute false statement. We cannot, we cannot separate the reality of the virgin birth that produces a man who was God from Christianity without throwing Christianity in the garbage. Now that may sound like harsh language, but it is the truth. It is the truth. I'm going to try to show you that here in the next few minutes. That is a truth that we must defend. That is a hill that Christianity must die on. If you don't know the story of Christmas, I mean the real story and you're visiting this morning, and you're checking this thing called Christianity out, know this, the story of Christmas is about God becoming a man, becoming a baby, so that He is all God and all man. God joining the divine nature with the human nature. That's what Isaiah said would happen. That was the reference in Genesis 3.15 thousands of years ago. That's what Isaiah said in chapter 7 and in chapter 9 and so many other prophecies throughout the Old Testament claiming that truth. Christmas is about God with us in the form of a God who was man and a man who was God. That's the story of Christmas. That's why that man is the most radical, influential, controversial, transformational person that ever drew breath. He was God and he came here. That's the truth of Scripture. It's the truth of Christianity. All of Christianity is built upon that truth. All of it. You take that truth out and it all falls. I cannot overstate that. That truth is what holds up 
everything about salvation for lost humanity. It's the fact that God became a man and that man was fully God and that God-man did what only God could do as a man to save us. Now what I want to show you is how central that truth is to the New Testament. I have done this in the past. I was pretty convinced that I had. And after first service, somebody came up and, and reminded me, said, yes, I do remember years ago you doing something like that. So I, if that was you, uh, you know, I, I can't remember what socks I put on this morning, so let alone what I said years ago. So I hope it's as fresh for you as it is for me this morning. <clears throat> but what I want to show you, illustrate for you, is how central the message of this God-man is, this quote as some call it this fanciful story of this virgin that was conceived by the Holy Spirit and had this child. We don't need that story, they say, to believe in Christianity. Well, I beg to differ. I want to show you that. If this word right here is our Magna Carta, and it is for Christianity then what does this say about it? Let me illustrate that a few different ways. The New Testament has 27 books, 27 letters. Those 27 letters either have eight or nine authors, depending upon who wrote Hebrews. So let's just start with this. If we don't want to believe that seemingly fanciful story about this virgin conceived by the Spirit. Let's just go to the authors that claim that and take them out because, man, if, if, they're, you know, if they're reaching that far, they're really not credible. So let's pull them out of the New Testament and see what we'd be left with. You know how many you'd be left with? Zero. You'd have a cover on each side, title page, publishing page and no book that's what you'd have so let's go a little deeper there let's take that another step there's 27 letters from those eight or nine authors well it could be that some of those eight authors claimed it at one point and then changed their mind because many of them wrote more than one letter right so let's just go to the 27 letters and see how many of the 27 letters actually claim the divinity of this child that came, that he was actually God in the flesh. Now, one of the ways that we look for that uh, is a title, the Lord Jesus Christ. That title is significant, the Lord Jesus Christ. As you look at that in its original languages, it's talking about the anointed promised one, the God who was to become man. So let's just go through and see how many of the 27 make the claim that Jesus Christ was both man and God. And we'll throw out the ones that do and see what we're left with. Matthew does. Mark. And Luke, 
and John, got to get rid of those four, and Acts and Romans and first and second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, no good, Colossians, no, first and second Thessalonians, no, first and second Timothy, no, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, first and second Peter, first John, second John, Jude, nice catch, Ron, and Revelation. Did I miss any? I missed one. Third John. Here's what you'd be left with if you took out all of the letters that claimed that Jesus was God in the flesh. You'd be left with one letter. Now that letter was written by John and in his other letters profusely He talked about Jesus being God. Matter of fact, at the end of the Gospel of John, he said many other things could have been written, but these are written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But you'd be left with one letter. Let's take that even one more step. I can, with my writing, I can get about... In one page of Scripture, I can get it on about three, three-by-five cards. My Bible has about, I think, 235 pages in the New Testament in it. That'd be over 700 of these. If I wrote it out on three-by-five cards, this New Testament would take up 700 note cards. Guess how much Third John would cover? One. One. Here's what you'd have to go on if you took out the letters that were written by those that claimed that Jesus was both God and man, fully God, fully man. You would have one three-by-five card to base all of your belief on. That's what you would have left. You see, the common, consistent, pervasive truth of this book is that Jesus is God in the flesh that left heaven, married the divine nature with the human nature, entered into our reality. He is, as Isaiah said, God. Wow, a couple of you got it. Ready? God. Yeah, God with us. That's the message of Christmas. God with us. God with us. You see, Bible is really clear on the identity of Jesus. Very clear. Christianity hangs upon the reality of the identity, the divinity of Jesus, the God-man. Consider it. Reflect upon it. Let it saturate your heart and your mind and your emotions until it drowns you in God's love. Listen, the eternal holy God of all glory lived and walked and had His being here on earth in the closest context, con 
contact with sinful humanity as possible. He became one of us. He became one of us. God with us. That's the story. It's a story of indescribable love and grace and compassion. God with us. Don't ever question that truth. You cannot deny it from Scripture. And if you take the written word and set it next to the living word, the living word proves that the written word is right because everything that the written word said about the coming living word actually came true. And everything that Jesus lived and taught is a perfect reflection of what the written word said God's plan was. He is the righteousness of God in flesh. He is the righteousness that God showed in the Old Testament we were required to have. And Jesus came and perfectly lived that righteousness so that He could be the God who comes to man and makes sinful man righteous so that the unrighteous man, now made righteous by Jesus, could come to the righteous God and have a a relationship of peace and security for eternity. You see, Christmas cannot, I know I say this every year, I feel like I say this every year, but I cannot get through Christmas without this. You cannot stop at the manger with Christmas. It makes no sense if you stop at the manger. If you stop at the manger, you've got God leaving his throne in heaven, taking his divine nature, the God who said, let there be, and everything came about, the God who upholds all things by his strength and sovereign power, the God who has never had a beginning and will never have an end, the God who has no one equal to him, who has no adversaries that can stand up against him, that God came came down, became a man as an infant to be a cuddly little child in a manger and the story ends. What would the purpose of that be? It would be meaningless. It would be a trip for nothing because it wouldn't do anything for you. It wouldn't do anything eternally for you. That's why the manger has got to be connected with The cross. Always the manger has got to be connected with the cross. You see, it's a story, Christmas is, about a Savior. It's a story about a Savior. The angel said to Joseph, Here's the name you're to give him. Name the child Jesus, quote, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angels came to the shepherds. And they said to the shepherds on the hillside in announcing the birth of Jesus, he said that unto them was born that day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. John said that Jesus came 
as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world to save us from our sin. Paul wrote that Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus Himself, the child grown into a man, said, here is why I came. I came to seek and to save the lost. I didn't come for the swaddling cloths of the manger. I came for the cross. I came to seek and to save the lost. And He did that through His death. Through His death. The same prophet Isaiah, that said, the virgin is going to have a child, chapter 7. And the same prophet in chapter 9 who said that child is going to be the mighty God, the everlasting Father. That same prophet later in that same letter in Isaiah 53 verse 5 wrote this, talking about this Messiah, this child from the virgin, this mighty God, everlasting Father that was to come. Here's what he said about him in Isaiah 53 verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Looking into the future, some 700 years into the future, God showed him what would happen to this God in the flesh. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. You see, the birth of Jesus was simply a setup for the death of Jesus. You see that? The birth was the doorway to the death. The manger was the door. The cross was the destination. He was conceived in the womb so that He could be laid in the tomb. Blood flowed in His veins so that it could flow from His wounds. That was the purpose. The manger was the doorway to the cross. That's a part of the Christmas story. It's all about a Savior. It's all about a Savior. If you stop short of the cross, here's what you've got. You've got this Jesus who could amaze teachers, even as a young child, 12 years old, with his understanding of the Scriptures, he did that. You have Jesus who could heal the sick. You have Jesus who could cast out demons and take authority over them. He did that. You have Jesus who who could walk on water and look at the storm-tossed sea and say, I command you, peace be still, and it would lay flat. He did that. You have Jesus who could strengthen legs that had never walked and give sight to eyes that had never seen, and He could come to a corpse and make it live again. He did that. 
You have Jesus who could take a little boy's lunch and could feed 5,000. But if you stop there, if that's all that he did, then you have nothing in Jesus that does anything for you. It's all just a neat story that has no application or impact or transformation for you. But if you keep the cross with the cradle and with the other events of his life, then what you have is a life that radically transforms you for eternity if you'll trust in him. Makes all the difference in the world. It's like two sides of a coin. You gotta have both so that the value is there. And it's the cross that completes the cradle. And you need both. Jesus is the God of heaven who came so he could wear your flesh, so he could bear your sin, so he could pay your penalty. And so he could secure your victory. How does that become yours? There's what it says in Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The theme is God is a God who is faithful to His promises. If you're hearing the story of Jesus and you are realizing Jesus is who the Bible said that He is, He is God come from heaven to become man so that he could take my sin and pay its penalty and he rose again on the third day and now what he is offering is eternal life, forgiveness of sins and eternal life to me. Then that message is your salvation today. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth that that is who Jesus is. You will be saved. That is the promise of the Bible. And God is a God who keeps his promises. Every time Jesus proved that. He's still proving it today. He's still proving it today. Would you please stand? Worship team is going to come. We're going to sing a song right after we pray here. But I just want to pray for you. Maybe some of you here have been checking the Christianity theme out, story out, coming to church here on Christmas time. But you're hearing something today that is more than just kind of a once a year deal, and it is. It's meant to change your life. It's meant to take you from being estranged from God to having God with you. It's Emmanuel. That's the story. God with you. I don't mean geographically. I mean in every sense of the way. I mean He became us so that He could relate to us in every sense of the way so that we could have an intimate relationship with Him and that's what He wants with you. You put your faith in Him today. You sensing the truth of what I'm saying, if 
you are, then the Spirit of God is calling you. He's calling you to put your faith in Jesus so that He can save you. He's calling you to do that. It's your adequate response. Let's pray, Father. I'm asking, Lord, that you would open minds and hearts uh, to believe. That is the reasonable response to the truth. I'm I'm just praying that you would reveal your son, Jesus. And that what Jesus wants to offer, the eternal life, the forgiveness, the joy, and the undefeatable hope that he wants to offer, I pray that would be received as you grant faith and repentance today to hearts. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you are Emmanuel, God with us. If you want our placing your faith in Jesus today, there's not a specific prayer that Bible says you have to pray, but I'll just give you some words if you need some help just in your heart. Just say to the Lord, Jesus, Lord, I believe in you. I do believe that you are God in the flesh. I believe that you left heaven, that it was your purpose to come and die and to rise again paying for sin and defeating sin and death and hell. Satan, like the promise given in Genesis 3.15, said that you would do. I recognize that I'm in need of salvation. I have sinned against God and am not worthy, but I come because of Jesus and Jesus alone. I rest upon Jesus, trust in His work and His work alone. Nothing do I bring but my sin, but I'm calling out for your mercy and your grace. Jesus, would you save even me? In your powerful name I pray. Amen. You prayed that prayer. Here's the truth. God's faithful to His promises. And the promise is all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved.